Hello and welcome to DigiListen, a weekly podcast about digital service delivery for the voluntary sector. With sudden impact of coronavirus, charities, community groups, social enterprises and voluntary organisations of all sizes are shifting their service delivery into digital remote channels. We've been hosting online weekly chats with folks from all kinds of charities, experts and people on the front line about what they're learning and how charities can make use of digital to reach people more than ever before. I'm Ross McCulloch, Director of Third Sector Lab. This week we are talking about tech privacy and ethics. Joining me this week is Maddie Stark from the Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations. So, Maddie, why do you feel tech privacy and ethics is important to third sector organisations? I think it's something that's important to everybody, everywhere, Ross. Yeah, it's yeah, such yeah, a big yeah, topic. Yeah, it's yeah. such a big thing. And really, I think sometimes it's we make a lot of assumptions in our sector and in any sector, not just ours. And actually, it's good to take a stand back and go, hang on. Are we actually taking these things into consideration? Are we actually thinking about ethics? Are we thinking about privacy? We can get bogged down with things like GDPR and whether we're doing it right and making sure that we are, that actually it's, we just need to stand back and see the bigger picture sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've got this week is acclaimed author, Ivana Bartoletti, and she's written a book on tech and privacy ethics and AI. She's going to be talking a wee bit more about the book in the call. And she gave, for me, a really amazing broad overview of this topic um, and some of the big issues around ethics and, and taking it beyond just that that kind of notion of privacy and what people are doing with their data, but also, you know, things like how decisions are being made in our lives and how this technology is going to be ramped up and where AI is going to influence what the charity sector looks like in future. So it feels like AI still feels as if it's, you know, it's a, it's a topic that's far into the future and we shouldn't really be thinking about it at this point in time. And I would argue for a lot of small charities, building an entire digital strategy around AI would be slightly ridiculous. But actually just thinking about how this is emerging and how this is going to be influence civil society, I think, is incredibly important. So for me, this this digi shift this week was maybe less about the practical how-to stuff, but about some of the stuff that your board should be considering. And really, where does tech ethics come into those discussions that are going to be discussed by trustees and having an understanding of that at a senior level? I just want to start by saying why I wrote the book. I love the book because I've been uh, in privacy law for quite a long time. And I started to feel a little bit of unease around surveillance. Then I went into human rights and um, life is strange. I was in Italy at the time, then I moved to the UK and other places. Over the years, my approach to privacy changed a lot. And he went from a very sort of individualistic, you know, I want to protect my data, safeguard my information, to something different. It went to something like my data is very much a public value. And I think this has been so true and I felt it so much during COVID where we've all felt and we've all still feel, I think, very much interconnected and interdependent on each other. Because if I have COVID and I come and talk to you face-to-face for 15 minutes or longer, a close distance, then I might get you ill. So the importance of our personal data as a fantastic public value has really, I think, come through during this pandemic. 
And it's really important that we think about this at a time where sort of the biggest trends that we see in data, and we've seen them before COVID, and we're building on them in a post-COVID response, are, in my view, surveillance, datafication, and punishment. And I'll come in a moment to talk about that. So I wrote my book from a from three main areas. One is I wrote my book as a privacy person, somebody who really believes in the public value of personal data. But I also wrote my book as a policy person, as somebody who believes that the digital dividends in our society have not been shared equally between all of us. And I wrote this book as a feminist. Um, I'm a proud feminist. And for me, feminism is all about power. And I was growing up and I was navigating through privacy law and understanding what is the impact on technology on the way we live. I came across very quickly the fact that in our digital world, there is one element, which is the asymmetry of power, which underpins it. And this asymmetry of power is what really got me thinking a while back. And it is about, as I said earlier, it is about the digital dividends not being distributed equally. So that is about this sort of big tech, a lot of data about us, increasingly becoming part of our digital, of our infrastructure. If you think about what, what's been happening with COVID, uh, these companies, they have been the ones delivering our goods. They are the ones where most people get the news. There's big tech, which is now partnering with the state and governments, for example, on the COVID app, on the tracing app, they've increasingly become part of our digital infrastructure. However, there is a big asymmetry underpinning the way that we, we live in our digital space. And this is because of this asymmetry of power, is because of how much disinformation these companies hold about us, but also the um, issue of how sophisticated the algorithms that follow us um, create which news we see and which news we don't see and target us with behavioral advertising, how sophisticated these algorithms have become. So on the one hand, you have these very sophisticated algorithms. And on the other hand, you've got us humans who have not changed in decades and centuries, we're still the same ones with the same emotions and feelings that we had for centuries and millenniums. At the same time, these algorithms are becoming more and more um, sophisticated. So this asymmetry of power really got me thinking because I was thinking, what is it? And how do we govern all this? And also, what is the limit what are we happy with? And everybody's talking at the moment about artificial intelligence. And yes, I mean, artificial intelligence is great. And there are so many good things that are happening. So at the moment, we've got products that are able to detect cancer way before it manifests. At the moment, we can really have computers and robots that support young children with autism in education and there are some really good things happening. But at the same time, I have to say that sadly, 
the focus of artificial intelligence over the last few years has been all geared towards two main areas, surveillance and computing advertising. Obviously, people say, well, that's where the money goes. But if you build society on these trends, and if you build our response to coronavirus and to this enormous pandemic that has been shattering in our world over the last few months, on these trends, surveillance, datification, computing advertising, then I think we need to have a discussion about what is the future of artificial intelligence? Where do we want it to go? And what is the role of us as citizens? Because artificial intelligence is much more than technology. It's much more than that. It's very much, once again, about power. Because AI has got the power as it is used now through these very powerful algorithms for computing advertising, the use of surveillance, which we are seeing as being enormously devastating if you look at what's going on in the US and across the world in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, when people talk about uh, AI, they think about Terminator, or they think about supercomputers, or they think about futuristic things taking over our world. But we've got to think about what's happening here and now. And what is happening here and now is that artificial intelligence has been very much developing in the areas of surveillance and computing advertising. And it's been very much built on the trends of datification, surveillance that we've seen emerging over the last decades. So that's the first point that I really wanted to make, right? So when we talk AI, please, let's not imagine a futuristic scenario, but let's think about what is happening here and now. That's the first point that I wanted to make. The second point that I wanted to make is I talked about the big things underpinning the digital world now. And I said one is the asymmetry of power, which is to me is, is very much important. That is also what drove my feminist analysis to it, because ultimately to me, feminism is all shifting the balance of power within society. And this is the same thing and the same process that we've got to do in the digital space. The other big thing is around datification. And this is where I want to focus for a moment, because you work in charities, you work in, in a sector which is absolutely crucial for our shared values and shared ethics in our society. And I really want to focus for a moment on an area where I would love the third sector charities to be more involved and really driving the social response to it. And this is the area of datafication. So datafication is the potential, the ability and the habit of rendering any social world phenomenon into data. Then turning this data into what drives policy decisions what is ingested into algorithms to make those decisions and which is also driving in the US in the first place, but more and more in the rest of the Western world, let alone some big parts of the rest of the world, algorithms replacing policy itself and computation even replacing the law. So this certification 
is very much a characteristic of the situation and the world we live in. We've heard the mantra, all of us, about data. The data is this neutral thing that photographs the world as it is and can give us the way forward in understanding how to respond to a policy problem. And this is extremely problematic because there is no such thing as neutrality in data. No such thing. There is nothing more distant from neutrality than data itself because data represents society as it is. The digital architecture that we use to, to really um, collect as much data as possible, but this data represents decades, centuries of social structures and inequalities. And when we use data to then ingest and we ingest this data into the machines, into these algorithms, what can happen is that we then recreate and perpetuate the stereotypes that we've got into society and we elevate them from stereotypes to prejudice because of the capacity that these machines, these algorithms have to scale up quickly the inequalities and bias that we've got in society right now. So first point really is really challenging the sanctity of data. This is really, an, this is a very important step that we've got to make. Because when we set up a data set, there is always a power situation there. There is somebody who's decided to elevate somebody to data, to be injected into a data set. But by elevating someone, you're silencing somebody else. So the choice and the politics of data classification are absolutely important. So I really want to stop here for a moment because this issue of data, and I'm really focusing on this to you because of the role and what you do and, and, and how important it is that we are aware of all this. So, so non-neutrality of data is a really important concept. The understanding that data is in the world we live in, behaving as capital is the next concept I want to go into. A lot of people will say to you, data is the new oil. Please do not believe them for a second. When you use oil, you've used it and it's finished. The problem with data is that when you use it, you use it again and then you use it again and then you repurpose it. There's nothing as oil in the data that we use. The problem with data is that the politics of data accumulation, which is accumulating as much data as possible and is really, really important um, to really understand that data is not really oil, but is behaving as capital. And by capital, is driven by accumulation. And it also has the same characteristics of capital at a geopolitical and global level. By really getting a lot of data from countries that are financially poor, but data rich. And this is why a lot of us are talking about data colonialism as a new form of data, the way that data is behaving right now. I see Mary in the chat um, mentioned invisible women, and I was coming to it. The very important work that has been done 
to from Caroline to really um, understand that the way that the world has been programmed has been really modelled onto men. And if you look, for example, at the uh, even the PPE kit during this pandemic, female nurses couldn't even wear them when they got them because they were not made for women. Data is the product of power relationship. And in that case, it's the product of men driving society and therefore all data collection happening in a certain way. So understanding, really understanding the concept of data is not neutral and challenging the sanctity of data is an essential passage that we really have to go through. Now, what happens where this data gets ingested into algorithms? What happens, for example, if we start to use artificial intelligence machines recruitment? What happens if we start using artificial intelligence to decide whether somebody has got access to a loan or not? Or whether you can have access to a house? Or whether somebody can have access to employment benefits? Or whether somebody can have access to a particular medicine? On how much dose of a particular medicine they need to receive because of it is called personalized medicine and artificial intelligence. Now, there are a number of issues with that. And I really need to talk you through what is the other big thing that is very much in the public domain, which is the area of bias in algorithms. And I really want you to understand where bias in algorithms comes from. Because again, we've got to challenge what is going on at the moment. So bias comes in many different ways. One way for bias to come in, if it's all this data, which as we said is totally not neutral, is to then make these decisions. So you put all this data, which is historic data, which is the photograph of society as it is in 2020, and you take all this data, you ingest it into these machines, and then you get these machines to learn and to make decisions about it. Of course, when these machines make decisions, the decisions will mirror what they've learned. And what they've learned is from the historic data that they've been fed. So they will learn that women get paid less than men. They will learn from historic data that some more vulnerable people from BAME backgrounds would historically commit more crime than others. And I say commit more crime because they had more surveillance and more data collection wrapped around them than others. If you look at stop and search and how it's wrapped around black people and people of colour, then the majority of the data around crime will be around them. Therefore, when it comes to ingest all this data, for example, to see who is more likely to commit a crime, the data and the outcome will reflect the data that has been ingested. And I have a question for you here, because this is where I want people to really engage in these conversations not just with me now, but around the kitchen table and with your colleagues and friends and everybody. One thing that really, really, really concerns me is the concept and the idea that replicating stereotypes in what is called predictive analytics is going to just reinforce stereotypes in society and is going to turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy rather than contribute to liberating society and creating justice. And I want these issues to be at the forefront 
because this is the time. This is the time. We are hearing a massive global demand for justice. And we've got to hear it and embrace it. And this is the time for us to ask the right questions. And, and it's happening at a time where companies like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, Unilever, they're pulling their ads because they know that if unfettered, if uncontrolled, if unaccountable, the architectural persuasion that we've built online by leveraging historic data will only reproduce the stereotypes that we've got in societies And if you couple that with fake news, deepfakes, micro-targeting, we're not going to create a cultural line which enables people to be more free, more themselves, and more liberated. So the issue of bias, which is comes from data ingested into the machines, but watch out. <laughs> and this is the key point I really wanted to make, if there is one point that I wanted to remember. People will try and say that the bias in the outputs of these algorithms comes only because of historic data. It's not true. Please, if people say we can fix it, we can fix a machine, we can fix the algorithm, and by fixing the algorithm, we will have the perfect response. Be aware of the answer is no. First of all, because data bias comes in many other ways. And I'll give you an example, which could be a bit shocking, a bit extreme, but I, it's, I think it serves the purpose at this stage. So let's say that I decide to use AI to recruit individuals. And I, instead of having HR people, I say, well, you know what? I'm going to use an algorithm. And I'm going to describe exactly who is my perfect employee. And then I'm going to describe him. I'm going to find them through my current employee, define them, identify them. And then using machine learning. Machine learning is, you know, the machine learns, learns what's good and finds correlation and finds patterns and all this. And I'm going to say that for me, somebody who, come, who uh, is a good employee is somebody who comes to work every day at eight o'clock in the morning because for me, punctuality is really important. Now, if my office is based in central London or in central New York, where the rents a five grand a month for a flat. Who is going to be able to come to work on time at eight o'clock? The single mum with two kids who's got to take them to nursery in the morning? All the wealthy white man who lives with no wife, no children by himself in a flat. The reason why I mentioned this example, which is rather extreme, is to say that bias doesn't only come because of data, but it also comes because of the values on what's good, what's bad, we put into the system. The proxies and the labels that we choose to define what we like and what we don't like. They say proxies, for example. A postcode, if used, can tell so much about people. It can tell you the color of your skin, how much money you have. And even if, you know, if you're gay or not sometimes, So sometimes discrimination can come in. So there is so much I think that we need to understand and unpack. And I'm going to say to you the concept that is really important in this. Bias can come in for data put into the system, the labels that we choose. So how we define what's good about, how we evaluate it. It can also come in because you can identify a sample 
But then the way that the algorithm works on that sample is very different from how it works across the general population. This has happened sometimes in health, where a particular algorithm latches on to data which represents a local community. And then if you use it somewhere else, then it doesn't work with enormous, enormous disastrous consequences of individuals. So the reason why I'm saying this is because we can't be fooled. Do you know why? Because there are so many products in the market that tell you, oh, yes, we can fix an algorithm. We can. And I do work with products that I've developed and we have developed, which they look at how we can understand technically when a decision is being made, which part of the algorithm played the bigger role. You can have this. But an algorithmic fix will not be sufficient. And this is why your input as organizations, as individuals, as leaders in the communities is crucial. An algorithmic fix is not going to fix the problem. The issue with data is not just about cleaning the data or data cleansing, but it's about the fact that they reflect structural inequality in our societies. And we can have algorithmic justice, but algorithmic justice is far different from justice in society. And when we deploy these systems to define our welfare state, uh, our policies, drive our policies, and when we define that, then we really need to be very careful not to misunderstand what is the algorithmic justice and fairness that everybody's on at the moment with justice and fairness in society. So the important thing is really understand that bias can come from many different elements and that a purely algorithmic fix will not going to fix the problem. And I also want to add something else. You may have the most perfect algorithm, which is completely unbiased, completely fair, but you can still use it for completely the wrong thing. To me, the example of this is facial recognition. Facial recognition is biased and cannot recognize black faces with enormous consequences of black people. And this is why Amazon, for example, they've said we're no longer selling recognition, which is the software for facial recognition, to the police. IBM thing and Microsoft, they say the same thing because they want to understand what is the legal framework around all this, but I also want to fix the bias. But I'm going to ask you a question. When the bias is fixed and the machine is perfectly able to recognize a black person, is the problem solved? Do we still want facial recognition? Do we still want a tool that watches us when we go around in public spaces? Because the thing is, you know, being watched or feeling that you're being watched, even if you're not, changes the way that you behave in a public space, changes the idea of privacy as a fantastic public value, the idea that you can be gay and go into a pub, even if your parents don't know, because you're not watched. And it's really important, I think, that we ask ourselves the question, one thing is to fix the algorithm so that it's no longer biased. And one thing is to say, well, facial recognition We need to understand whether we want it, where we want it, 
And to understand the bias around it, it's not just in the data, but it's in the way that it's used. And this is the same that it happened in other areas of AI, such as predictive analytics. The idea that a lot of local authorities at the moment are starting to use in artificial intelligence to predict who is going to be vulnerable. The police are using artificial intelligence to predict who is more likely to commit a crime. The problem is that predictive analytics constructs and creates a world of tomorrow based on the inequality in the racialized society of today. So we've got to ask ourselves, are we happy with it? Are we happy with the way that we are letting algorithms predict, curate, target, edit? When you're online and you receive all your recommendations, are we happy to be recommended? And to we, where is the limit? Are we missing out on things that we would be exploring, but we are not? Are we missing out on the news? Are you and I watching different things? And if you and I watch different things, what is democracy? If we can't talk about the same things, if we don't know the same facts, what is happening with these machines? Algorithms curate, edit, construct, build, manipulate. And I think this is what we need to have a conversation about. And this is not because we don't love technology, it's the opposite. It's because of the idea that technology can be so good that we want it to work for everybody. And also, we want it to work in the right way. At the moment, there's a lot of debate around ethics. And this is a really interesting one because a lot of people are interrogating themselves and saying, well, what, you know, what is ethics? What does it mean? And a lot of companies, especially in the aftermath of COVID-19, a lot of companies are focusing on how to be good businesses. How do we avoid going back into norm, sort of what was before, but also companies are asking themselves, you know, what does it mean to innovate with purpose? And I think this is a really important moment for us to talk about these particular issues. First of all, because what is happening with COVID, the debate has been laid bare with the tracing app, for example, right? The fact that, you know, with the tracing app, in my view, there has been really a, a, I mean, all the trends upon which society was built before COVID, they've been laid bare there. Techno-solutionism, the fact that a technological solution must be better than a non-technological one, you know, by default. The fact that surveillance, the fact that, you know, we need that kind of tool. And the third element is the fact that this dichotomy between health and privacy, which is so dangerous. It is very similar to the dichotomy that we had between health and security after 9-11. So dangerous because there should be no dilemma, there should be no dichotomy because we've got the capacity to have enhancing technology from a privacy perspective. We've got a capacity to pass legislation to define exactly what we're going to use data for. And we have the tools in 2020 to create solid oversight board to ensure the citizens are the heart of this and we do not sleepwalk into surveillance and that COVID data today does not become surveillance data tomorrow. The tools are there. People are worried. Yes, of course they're worried. We had Cambridge Analytica. That was research data that then ended up being used for manipulation. Of course, people are worried. But it's a good thing that people are worried. And we missed an opportunity with that COVID app because we didn't pass legislation 
We didn't enable politics to be at the forefront to this and say, we specify and set out in legislation how long this data is going to be held for, who's going to have access to it, what is not going to be used for, when is exactly going to be deleted. They should have been gone through Parliament. And then we had a debate about COVID apps, which was led by the cryptographers and not by the epidemiologists. How wrong is that? I think in this debate around COVID apps, a lot of people have realised that we've been talking about privacy, security, this dilemma between privacy and health, as if there's a dichotomy there rather than something that can go hand in hand. And I think in, uh, during this pandemic, we've really realised we've got to do something about this. We've got to rethink the concept of privacy as personal autonomy. We've got to rethink the way that our data is, is, is conceptualised, which is a great common public value if handled with care, with privacy at heart, with ethical values. But it's a fantastic public value, all the data that we've got, that we need this data for research but we can use privacy-enhancing technologies to really make it work, that we can find a way which we as a society would deem as ethical in a way that we share data. And maybe we move away from this individualistic approach to consent, which doesn't work anymore, in my view. How are we going to navigate the smart world we live in where everything is interconnected, where we browse the internet, if this world, digital world, instead of being built on trust, is built on the illusion of control. Are we going to go through every single privacy notice every two seconds? Are we going to read pages and pages of legal documents, which is there to deceive by design? Because nobody has got the, really has got the time to go through every single thing. And how are we going to navigate smart cities? Going from a smart ta- city to a smart car, and then walk into a smart home. We need a system which is based on trust, on rules, and on shared values around what we want with our data in our society. The real issue here is that I think that we've waited such a long time for something to happen on these issues. If you think about the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which I know some people are like, oh my God, the GDPR. But in reality, the issue with the GDPR. We say it's come too late, in my view. And in meanwhile, meanwhile, that our digital ecosystem has grown wild. The digital ecosystem has become an architectural manipulation and persuasion with sort of the supercomputer, the algorithms pointing at us as we navigate, as we browse the internet, hacking into who we are, hacking into our, into our weaknesses, understanding what we fear so they can target us, like it happened with Cambridge Analytica, where if you were fearing immigration, you would get served ads about how Europe increased immigration. If you were identified and classified as an animal lover, you would get ads about how Europe hates animals. This is what's happened to our digital ecosystem. So I think it's really, really important that we as society, as people, as individuals, that we really stop for a moment and say, okay, we've got to go, you know, this is not a topic for techies. This is a topic about shared values, politics, participation, and us being in the digital world, which is as important as us being in the physical world. And at a time where, thank 
thank you to the people like Greta Thunberg with putting the physical environment at the forefront, we've got to put the digital one at the forefront as well because the two are so much interconnected. And they're interconnected for many different reasons, if only because of the computing power that artificial intelligence development need. So it's really, really important to say, okay, this is not just for the techies, this is us. This is about citizenship and democratic participation. And there are solutions in a way that we hold our data. Do we need to rethink the way that our digital infrastructures is, is conceived? Do we need to think, for example, of you know, big data trusts? Do we need to think about new intermediaries between us and organizations handling our, and, and, and using our data? So that it's not just us and the big company, but sometimes it's so complicated for us to understand what a company is doing with our data. Do we need to rethink this, our democratic and, and digital participation? So I think what's really important really is to say, okay, this is not just for the techies, this is for everybody. This is about really talking about the digital citizenship as important as the physical citizenship in the physical world we live in. And then we have to really understand that these trends that our world has been built on, techno-solutionism, surveillance, datification, they are bringing enormous consequences. And as we continue to embed um, automated decisions done by algorithms into our systems, we are slowly but continuously embedding new risks into the system. So, for example, in the US, they talk about automation of poverty, which is basically saying that you are locking people out because of all the things that we talked about about bias, that you are locking, locking people out of essential services. If you think about housing or education, which are the true levels in life, this is where equal opportunities come to the fore. You're locking people out of essential services. Algorithms curating, editing, they decide what you get to see and what you don't get to see based on what is perceived as your personality, based on what you type, you like, what you look at. And not necessarily what you say, but what is inferred about you. Because on machines, being fed a lot of, the, a lot of data and then um, making correlations about facts, about behaviours. So this is very much of a sort of sensation as anxiety altogether. How are we going to do it? Tricky one. But surely it's really important and we don't let this debate and the wider topic of ethics and digital ethics in this space being decided by Silicon Valley because that's not fair. That's us. That's affect us on a daily basis. So people, I mean, some people talk about privacy paradox. So some people say that it's a paradox because people say that they care so much about privacy but then they end up accepting everything online. I am in two minds about this privacy paradox, and I'd be happy to discuss, but I don't think it's true. First of all, because there is no alternative. So it's not that there's an alternative to Facebook, no, there's an alternative to Twitter. You know, we, we you know, these tools, they've become very much public utilities. Do you see what I mean? They should be treated as such as well, but they've become ingrained in our infrastructure. So there is no alternative. First point. Second point, I do think it's also a matter of presentation. And I'm, I don't think people go far enough and organisations go far enough in identifying ways to present data information to, to people. 
So to an extent, sometimes you feel that there is a little bit of deceit by design rather than privacy by design in the way that they deal with this. So in my book, I really wanted to bring together a lot of the of the of these topics and really um, really narrate a story of how when we talk AI, we immediately think about Terminator and, and futuristic stuff. But in reality, we should be worried about the here and now. And we should take control and ownership of this discussion as citizens and organizations. We should find new way to engage with people around what do they want from artificial intelligence moving forward. And we should really look at power because what is driving an AI is very much about power. And everybody's talking about this global AI race. And we've got to be careful about it. A race to what? We've got different models, haven't we? You know, you have China with a social credit scoring with a different approach to privacy. You've got the US with a very commercial approach to, to, to data, although things are changing with CCPA in California and hopefully with a federal law. A different way, which is a European way, which is sadly the UK is not going to be in Europe, but you know, but in a, and we've got a European way, which is, says, well, you, artificial intelligence has to be constrained by our human values. Human must remain at the centre of what we do. And then, you know, we need to have a discussion and close on this. We'll have to have a discussion as citizens around what kind of regulation we establish. And this is where the propaganda starts. You know, you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, artificial intelligence regulation is going to stifle innovation. And I always say, well, sectors are very regulated, like pharmaceutical. I mean, are they really victims of regulation or is actually regulation something that if done properly enables companies to thrive because it gives them a little bit of clarity about liability about the use of data about how not to get into to receive massive fines and of course you know if you if you think about regulation as swiping things coming you know, swiping things coming and changing and then i don't want that but the key thing is do we have enough legislation at the moment or even better does the current existing legislation work for the harms of algorithms we don't know if the harms of algorithms is as we said before being locking out being locked out of services stereotypes replicating do we have enough legislation at the moment or is that the law enough to protect us that is the question and if it's not well you know we've got to put it in place so that is where I think we need a bit of discussion. But the reason why I wrote my book is really because I want AI to be discussed at the kitchen table, at the pub, at the bar, to be a topic that is left to the techies. And I think now there is one more issue, compelling issue to do so, and that is the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's the global call for justice and for an end of anti-black racism that has really reminded everybody that ignorance cannot be an excuse. And to an extent, has also reminded everybody of the risk of these systems to perpetuate discrimination. And if we are not careful, careful, we will just allow these machines to scale up the stereotypes we've had in society so far. And if we do not move away from AI being used for surveillance and computing advertising. And we say, well, we want AI to focus on the big things that matter in the world. 
the environment, health. That's where tech should be. Then I think this is the time where we need to say, well, you know, we want ideas and politics back in the driving seat. And, you know, things are changing. Even the big, I mean, the big tech, they are realizing that without that trust, without the ability for us as consumers and citizens to trust what they do, they're going nowhere. So even, you know, we are in a situation where things are changing. So I think, you know, this is the time to really open up with friends, with colleagues and say AI is not just about tech. Technology is much more than tech. Technology is really about power. It's really about how we want to see the world tomorrow. And that cannot be left to a few people, but that has to be something that we discuss together. So hopefully you found Ivana's points and they're useful and it's helped you really think about these broad, huge issues around tech ethics, privacy and AI. Don't forget, we've got a huge, huge amount of resources on the SCVO digital pages on the website. So loads of stuff to get you started thinking around digital service delivery. Alison Stone from SCVO has written some really useful stuff on online safeguarding. Um, and also cybersecurity, which ties in really nicely with the call uh, this week. We're going to be back with future calls. We've got a really exciting one coming up on website accessibility and UX with Gareth Ford-Williams, who's the head of user experience design at the BBC. So that's going to be a really, really interesting call. Going to be useful uh, in that build-up that we've had up to this point, where I think people are ready for that type of level of input. If you can join the Zoom calls, the links are in the description, but you'll also get them if you Google SCVO events. And you can find more podcasts in this series on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Do please subscribe, review us, send it on to anyone that you think might find it useful. You can catch up with the SCVO digital team on Twitter at DigiScott. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks very much to everybody who made this podcast happen. First of all, the charities who joined us in the call and shared all their wisdom. Secondly, Tech for Good Live podcast crew who brought it all together. And finally, we're part of The Catalyst, which is a UK-wide network supporting charities to make better use of digital. 